Good afternoon, everyone. Last week, we were discussing the two covenants, and specifically in that particular sermon, why was the old covenant instituted? And we learned from Galatians 3 and verse 19 that it was because of transgressions. And we discussed that in some detail. And as an elaboration on that, I mentioned that we would be discussing how God decided to institute the Old Covenant in order to separate and preserve a people for Himself because of the transgressions that were universal on the earth at that time. And under that general heading, there are other specific reasons, a number of specific reasons that God instituted the Old Covenant, things that were intended to be accomplished through the Old Covenant. And there are five major things, at least five, along with others, and what we will be discussing in this series of sermons is not necessarily intended to be an exhaustive list of the various things that were accomplished or, or that were intended to be accomplished by the Old Covenant, but these are some of the things that were in God's mind in instituting that covenant. And remember, it was a temporary covenant. It was never intended to be permanent, but it was temporary. And we'll be discussing that more specifically as we go along as well. But let's examine now five reasons, specific reasons, under this general heading of, in order to deal with sin, why the Old Covenant was given. And the first is to separate and preserve a people for God. Now, as was mentioned, the earth was almost totally corrupt by Moses' time, mankind on the earth. Had God not intervened when He did, the earth would have be, become perhaps even more corrupt and not dissimilar to what the earth had become by the time God had destroyed, decided to destroy the earth in the antediluvian world. And I don't know that it was necessarily quite as extreme, the evils that were on the earth at the time that God instituted the Old Covenant, but certainly it was approaching that. But even though the earth was ripe for some intervention from God, to deal with sin, it was not yet time for a general revelation of God's law in its full spiritual application and force. But what God did instead was He chose out a physical nation, the nation of Israel. And of course, He had planned this long before that because He had already told Abraham that His descendants would be given certain blessings and so forth unique to mankind as a result of Abraham's obedience. But God fulfilled these promises at the time that He did in choosing out the people of Israel who had been slaves in Egypt. And He gave to those people after they had been liberated 
through a series of miracles. He gave them a limited version of his law that could be applied in a physical manner or a primarily physical manner. And this had to do with various physical sacrifices and physical rituals that were given as a part of that system. We're told in Galatians 3 and verse 23 that one of the major reasons for giving the law in such a manner is as follows, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, and he's speaking of Israel, before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Notice he said, before faith came, we were kept under the law. The law here in this particular context is referring to the Old Covenant, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. So let's analyze this statement and see if we can understand it more precisely. The Greek word translated faith here is, as is usual in the New Testament, is piston. It is a noun form of a Greek verb which means essentially to persuade. The Greek word piston means faith or belief or a firm persuasion. In Galatians 3 and verse 23, it is the faith. In other words, there is an article attached to it which would be translated the faith and as it says here, shut up unto the faith in the King James Version. The faith which implies a specific faith. The word used for the in the Greek is usually emphatic. And so when it says, and this is often true in English as well, when it says the faith, it is speaking of a particular faith, a specific faith that is emphatic. And so it is not speaking of just any kind of faith. It's speaking of the faith, the persuasion of mind, the actual change of mind and heart that comes with true spiritual conversion. That's what the faith is in terms of the Bible. It is a faith which transforms the mind and, and transforms one's life. And until this total faith embracing the very mind of God was plainly revealed by Jesus Christ and given to those under the new covenant, by the Holy Spirit after Christ's ascension into heaven, we, says Paul, meaning Israel primarily, were kept or preserved under the law. The physical Israel, we read there, as it said, was shut up unto the faith. Physical Israel was shut up unto the faith, or as this same phrase is rendered in the analytical Greek lexicon, banded under a bar of disability. Banded under a bar of disability from the faith of a converted mind. Now, remember we're speaking here of Israel as a whole, and we will later go into the matter of individual spiritual conversion during the Old Covenant period, but Israel as a whole 
did not have converted minds under the Old Covenant. They were quite simply a physical nation of fleshly, physically, carnally minded people who had not been converted and who lacked faith. The bar of disability that banded them from the full spiritual faith of God was a lack of conversion. Without faith, there is no conversion. And hence, a lack of God's spirit and God's mind. And the reason they were not converted is because they had not genuinely repented of their sins and had not received the Holy Spirit as a consequence of their failure to repent. So they were limited by their carnal minds. Therefore, they were given God's law in a limited form to preserve them from total corruption until the time came for the faith to be more fully and clearly revealed. And a spiritual Israel raised up as the next huge step in the working out of God's plan for mankind. Remember the plan of mankind from the beginning was for human beings to be given a chance to become children of God, to be given eternal life in the family of God as God's sons and a part of His kingdom, His eternal kingdom. And the things that God has been doing with mankind have always had that purpose in mind. The Old Covenant encoded a system of law and a way of life that God expected the Israelites to follow. And within that context, the knowledge of God's plan was revealed in seed-like manner in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch being the first five books of the Bible, often called the books of Moses or the law of Moses. And the plan of God is revealed in, in as I said, a seed-like manner in the Pentateuch. But much of what is communicated in the Pentateuch relating to the plan of God is enigmatic. For example, the various ritual ordinances associated with the Old Covenant relate to the plan of God. They have lessons embedded in them that have directly to do with the plan of God and how God is going to work out His plan or is working out His plan. But it is not necessarily obvious what that meaning is to the average person. The average person, even the average Israelite, probably had little, if any, understanding, for example, about what the Sabbath signifies in terms of God's plan. Even though they might have, in many cases, kept the Sabbath in one fashion or another, they didn't necessarily understand what its real meaning in a spiritual and prophetic sense was. The same with the various festivals of God, the annual festivals, and other aspects of the rituals and the exercises that the people of Israel were given to perform, the sacrifices and so forth. And it says that in Hebrews 9 and verse 9, it says that these religious exercises were symbolic. The things associated with the Old Covenant, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood, 
and so forth, that these things were symbolic, as it says in Hebrews 9 and verse 9 in the New King James Version, but the full meaning behind the symbols remained mostly hidden during the era of the Old Covenant, at least for most of the people of Israel and certainly, of course, for the rest of the world. Now, as time went on, various prophets came along and God revealed things to them and they wrote those things down or spoke things to people and much of that was later recorded or recorded at the time and passed on in the scriptures as the scriptures were added to in the writings of the prophets and so forth and the Psalms and other parts of the Bible. More was revealed over the centuries a little bit at a time about God's plan and how it was being accomplished and what God expected of all of us, especially the people of Israel. But the full meaning of what was revealed even from a prophetic standpoint remained mostly hidden to the people of Israel. And again, that was because of their carnality, because of their hard-hearted carnal attitudes. But even the prophets themselves often did not have a full understanding of what was being revealed to them. For example, in Daniel 12, we read about a vision that had been given to Daniel and an angel explained to him certain things about that. And Daniel said in Daniel 12, verse 8, he said, Although I heard, I did not understand. He heard the angel, what the angel was saying and the vision that was given, but he didn't understand it. And he goes on to say, Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? These were visions of end-time events, or events which would lead up to the end of the age. And the reply was, in verse 9 of Daniel 12, He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So the time would come when the wise would understand, but the wicked would remain clueless about what was going on before them. With the coming of Jesus Christ and the establishing of the church of God under the new covenant, much was plainly revealed that had up to that time, been hidden. Ephesians 3 and verse 1, Paul said, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Notice he says that God had, by revelation, made known to him the mystery. And the way this word is often used in the Greek, it refers to an open secret or a, a knowledge that is revealed to a select group or select individuals. And in this case, God had revealed to Paul certain information about the mystery. As he said, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. 
So what God had revealed to Paul, he was passing on to the church. And he went on to explain in verse 5, he said, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. So there were things that were revealed after the new covenant had been established that had not been made known previously. Details. Not necessarily talking about the overall plan, but details about it were revealed even before the new covenant was established by Jesus Christ. And then more was revealed after Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. Things that had not been known in detail before that. But understanding the things of the Spirit was mostly lacking in the minds of the Israelites under the Old Covenant, as we said, due to their carnality. Nevertheless, they had been chosen as God's people in a special way. The law that is the Old Covenant, remember we learned that the term the law, as it's often used in the Bible, especially in the New Testament and in Paul's writings, the law often is referring to the Old Covenant specifically. Not in every case, but in many cases it is. Because the law, that term was used in a variety of senses among the Jews, and has been for millennia, and is used in various senses in the Bible itself. One of those senses is the Old Covenant, the whole system that together formed what we refer to as the Old Covenant. And the law that is the Old Covenant, as we read, was given to keep or to preserve the people of Israel up to the time when the faith would be more plainly revealed. And for that matter, in a sense, continues to serve that purpose today because most people today are still not converted but with the giving of the Old Covenant, Israel was called out to be separate from other peoples. And they entered into a relationship with God through which they would be an example to other nations of mankind. If you look at the record of the Bible, the record of God's dealings with mankind, after the Garden of Eden, and the first human beings were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of their rebellion, you don't read a great deal about God intervening in the, the affairs of mankind. He did intervene at times, and He did have witnesses, but there was not a great deal of intervention until the flood. God intervened to destroy the earth because it had become so wicked. And as we saw after the flood, mankind began once again to multiply and became large in population. But as they became greater in number, they became more degenerate and more evil. And society became more corrupt. But when God chose Israel out of Egypt and gave them the Old Covenant, He entered into a relationship with, with them in which they would be an example to other nations and they were separated from the other nations, the heathen nations, through that covenant. They became God's nation, not just a certain person, 
here and there, scattered here and there, that had a, a relationship with God. But this was a nation that had been selected to enter into a special kind of relationship with God different from the other nations of the earth. And God would now deal with this nation in a specific way, and He would intervene in their affairs. In Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, we read, Of Israel, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, for the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So they were selected to become a holy people. Holy means separate and sanctified. They were set apart, is another meaning of that word, for a special purpose. And so they were different from the other nations of the earth in that respect. In Leviticus 20, verse 22, of Israel, it says, I have said to you, you shall inherit their land. This is speaking of the land of the Canaanites. I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. So notice that the covenant that God made with Israel served the purpose of separating them from the other nations of the earth, making them a holy nation to God, or that was the aim of it, and a nation that would be in a different kind of relationship with God from the rest of the world. And so God separated to Himself a people, and by, that, by the law, the, the covenant agreement with that people, he preserved them until, as we said, the next great step in the restoration of his government over all of mankind. Now, we might mention too here that God had not forgotten the other nations of the earth or mankind in general. This was always aimed at not only serving the interests of the people of Israel, but the interests of all peoples. The people of Israel were to become an example for the rest of the nations, how they could also relate to God had they behaved properly and followed the laws that they had agreed to follow when God made the covenant with them. But they didn't do that. The nation as a whole did not were not faithful to the covenant, and they remained mostly corrupt. But among them, there were always some who were faithful. And we find a principle in the Bible that has to do with this idea of preserving the nation of Israel and the world through this covenant. We actually find this example way back at the time of Abraham. In Genesis 18, verse 23, God had seen what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and decided that it was time to punish that society with destruction, to destroy it, as He had destroyed 
the antediluvian world through the flood, but this was not to be by flood, it would be by fire and brimstone. But Abraham and Lot were told about what God was going to do. Verse 23, Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall you not judge all the earth to do right? Now, this is pretty bold <laughs> on the part of Abraham to be speaking to God in this manner, but God had come to know Abraham and Abraham God in a way that they could converse as was being done here. So, verse 26 of Genesis 18, So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. So then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak, but once more suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So God said that if there was even a small number among the population in such circumstances, he would not totally destroy the place. Alas, there were not ten, and he did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice in Romans 11 and verse 1, Paul asks, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So we see how the Old Covenant being given to the people of Israel did not necessarily result in the conversion of the entire nation of Israel. In fact, certainly it did not. There were a few occasions when perhaps a large number were converted to one extent or another, but for the most part they remained unconverted. But 
at the same time, there were a number of individuals within the nation who were converted and who were faithful to God and faithful to the covenant. And through their faithfulness, the nation as a whole was preserved and the world, mankind, was preserved from utter destruction at that time. Now, it might also be noted in passing that in the process of separating Israel, God broke the power of the mightiest nations on earth, including Egypt, and certain powerful nations who were in Canaan, the Amorites, for example, as well as the rest of the Canaanite peoples. And he humbled those nations and set Israel before them as a witness. So the separation of Israel by the covenant served not only to preserve Israel, but also the other nations from the total ruin toward which they were headed. And as we read in Romans 11 and verse 12, Paul is speaking of Israel where he says, if their fall, that is the fall of Israel, who did fall eventually because of their rebellion, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, how much more will the world be blessed when the people of Israel do repent and turn to God in a wholesale manner? So, to review, one of the main reasons that God established with the covenant, the covenant with Israel, was to select a people for himself and preserve them and the world from destruction. A second purpose that the law or the old covenant was given to Israel was as an educational tool. It was a teaching device. Now, education is perhaps the all-encompassing reason for the giving of the law. It was designed to teach a multitude of things. And we will discuss some of the most important of these one at a time, but first let's establish that the Old Covenant was indeed an educational tool. Notice in Galatians 3 and verse 24, Paul writes, Wherefore the law, again meaning the Old Covenant, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Now, we already saw that Israel was banded under bar of disability as well as the rest of the world with regard to the faith as Paul points out in the previous verse. But what does a school teacher do? A school teacher, of course, educates. He teaches. He instructs. And again, we will review some of the things the law was intended to teach. The word pedagogos, which is the Greek word translated schoolmaster here, implied not only a teacher, but also a guardian of the children of a family. That was a common thing in the Greek world. People who were of means had a person called a pedagogos who was responsible to be 
a guardian of the children to oversee their conduct and behavior as well as to educate them. As it says in the analytical Greek lexicon, the teacher, the pedagogos, was a person whose duty it was to exercise a constant superintendence over their conduct and safety, as well as to instruct them. So the law was, again, intended to preserve Israel from destruction, and it was designed to teach at the same time. But what was it intended to teach? In a nutshell, it was intended to teach the eternal principles of God's spiritual law. But to describe exactly how this was done, let's be more specific and break this down into various things that were taught by this system. First of all, we read that the law, that is the Old Covenant, is the form of knowledge and truth. The Old Covenant is the form of knowledge and truth. Now God, being God, is a master educator. And one of the most effective ways of teaching is by the use of analogy. And God uses physical analogies to teach us eternal, invisible, spiritual truths. Notice in Romans 1 and verse 19, Romans 1 verse 19, that which may be known of God is manifest in or to them, meaning mankind, for God has shown it to them, for the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Now, this principle that is expressed here is that those things which are spiritual, those things which are eternal and invisible, invisible truths concerning God are made known and understandable by us, or to us, I should say, by the physical, temporary, visible things originated by God. We can know that God exists because we exist. We can know that God exists because the universe exists, and all the, the various forms of living things exist, which are inexplicable without a creator. Yeah, I know evolution has made a feeble attempt to try to replace the truth that God created those things, but it is a blind faith and utterly inadequate to explain the creation. But to those who are willing to open their eyes and see what is around them, there is abundant and ample evidence of God and a great deal of information about the nature of that God. And this brings us to the very crux of the relationship between the Old and New Covenants. The Old Covenant was a type of the New. The Old Covenant was God's immutable system of law and government given in a limited, physical, temporary form and expression. But although the Old Covenant was temporary and physical in nature, it was the image, the shape, the form, or the pattern of the eternal spiritual system of law and government to which it was analogous. As Paul wrote in Romans 2 and verse 20, speaking of the Jews, he said to them, the Jews, 
have the form, the form of knowledge and truth in the law. They had the form, the pattern, the outline of knowledge and truth in the law. Now, the book of Hebrews was originally written, it is believed, and the context makes it clear that it was originally written to Jewish Christians in Palestine to encourage them to stay the course by showing how the new covenant fulfills all that was foreshadowed in the old covenant, thus linking their ancient tradition, at least the true parts of their tradition, with the future of God's kingdom. And in the book of Hebrews, Paul shows how a number of specific aspects of the law as expressed in the old covenant find full, complete spiritual expression in the new covenant. Now notice what Paul says in Hebrews about the old covenant concerning the priesthood, for example. Paul said in Hebrews 8, beginning with verse 4, there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, the old covenant, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, said he, that you make all things according to the pattern shown you in the mount. So we're told here that the priesthood was a prefiguring, an example, a shadow, an outline of something greater. And that goes for everything encompassed in the Old Covenant. Because all the laws given in the Old Covenant were founded on spiritual principles. The various Aspects of the Old Covenant, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, all have their origin in living spiritual principles that are eternal. Every detail of the Old Covenant has its spiritual counterpart, application, and fulfillment under the New Covenant. And so let's look at a few examples of this. First of all, the tabernacle itself. It says in Hebrews 9, verse 8, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present. It was a figure, a type, for the time then present. And among other things, it was a type of the church, the spiritual tabernacle of God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, he was writing to the church, he said, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So the tabernacle was, among other things, a type of the church of God. And by studying the details of the tabernacle and the temple which replaced it, we could learn much about God's intentions for the church itself. Also, we can look at the kingdom that was established when God made the covenant with Israel, Mount Sinai. Israel was a kingdom, actually it was a kingdom before that in a manner of speaking. But notice what God said to the people of Israel 
when he established the covenant with him in Exodus 19, verse 6, he said, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak, he said to Moses, to the children of Israel. So this kingdom that was established was a physical type of the spiritual kingdom of God. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this was typical of the spiritual kingdom of God. The original and rightful king of Israel was, in fact, God himself, the eternal God. He was the original king of Israel. As we read in Judges 8, verse 23, or well, let's start with verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, real over Gideon was a judge of Israel at that time. And the, the men of Israel said, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So the people of Israel wanted to make Gideon their king and establish a dynasty there. But in verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Gideon understood that God was their king, and he wasn't about to try to usurp God's role as king of Israel. When later at the time of Samuel, Israel again demanded a human king, in, verse, first, in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, we read, The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Up to that point, he had been their invisible king and ruler. But they wanted a king that they could see, a human king that they could see with their eyes. They were not satisfied to have God ruling over them invisibly. But the same being, Jesus Christ, and by the way, the name Jesus Christ means the eternal king, Savior and High Priest. That's what the name means. The eternal Savior, King, and High Priest. But Jesus Christ is and shall be the King over spiritual Israel. As we read in Revelation 17, verse 14, speaking of those who will oppose Christ at His coming, it says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And the church, the New Covenant church, is called the Israel of God in Galatians 6 and verse 16. The things that happened to physical Israel were not only typical of the church, but were for the education and instruction of spiritual Israel. The things that happened and occurred between God and the people of Israel under the Old Covenant were for our instruction and teaching. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, speaking of the people of Israel, were under the cloud all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, or it could be translated our types, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Israel was a type of the church. The name Israel means prince of God. And those in the church in this age are now, in a sense, princes of God. And will, when Christ returns, become kings and priests in the God nation. Spiritual Israel. Revelation 1 and verse 4 says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, he has made us kings and priests. That doesn't mean we are ruling as yet because that's very clearly revealed in various other scriptures that we are not. Yet, we are future rulers. But if we are faithful, we are already, in a sense, awaiting our induction into the uh, responsibilities that will be given to us as priests and administrators in the kingdom of God. Another aspect of the relationship of the Old Covenant to the realities, the spiritual realities of God's purpose and plan is the mediator. Both the Old and New Covenants have a mediator. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. A mediator is one who stands between two people arranging a contract or an, an agreement. And Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. As it says in Galatians 3 and verse 19, Galatians 3 and verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve or the Old Covenant? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Appointed by the hand of a mediator, or agreed to, you might say, through the agency of a, a mediator. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 2, Deuteronomy 5, verse 2, Moses said to the people of Israel, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. And here Moses says, I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word 
of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. So Moses was the mediator, the one who stood between the two parties to the covenant as they entered into the agreement. And he's the one who went up to meet with God, to speak to God, and came back down and spoke to the people of Israel, and so forth, as they agreed to the covenant. Now, inasmuch as Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, he was, in that respect and others, a type of Christ as the scriptures show, because Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. As we read in Hebrews 12, verse 24, and several other scriptures, it says, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Now, another feature of the old covenant that has its fulfillment in the new covenant in terms of what it represented, is the priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was established under the, old, under the terms of the Old Covenant. And that priesthood was a type of the priesthood of Melchizedek. The term Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And so it's speaking of a priesthood that involved a king, a righteous king. So... This king is both a priest and a king. Now, at the present time, there's only one priest of the order of Melchizedek, but in the future, others will be added to the priesthood. The priesthood of Melchizedek is the saints are not only to be made kings or rulers under Christ, but priests as well. But Jesus Christ will always remain the high priest. And others will be established as priests under his authority. As we read in Hebrews 7 and verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. So Melchizedek, we're told, was an eternal being. And he was to be made like a son of God, which he was when he became a human being. And goes on to say in verse 21 of Hebrews 7, for they have become priests, speaking of the Levitical priests, they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also there were many priests, speaking of the old covenant Levitical priesthood, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and become, has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's? For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. But this physical priesthood was a type of that eternal spiritual priesthood. It goes on in chapter 8, verse 1, to say, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And as I said, others to be, are to be added to the priesthood. Revelation 20 and verse 6 it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Another feature of the Old Covenant, which was a type of spiritual reality, are the sacrifices. And there were a number of sacrifices that were specified to be offered under the Old Covenant, under the Levitical system. The major sacrifices required by the law, the Old Covenant, were types of the sacrifice of the New Covenant, Jesus Christ, and various features of Christ's sacrifice. I think we gave a, a sermon on that some time ago. But in Hebrews 9, verse 12, it says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own, with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without, to, uh, without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All the sacrifices under the Levitical priesthood or the Old Covenant, have lessons to teach about Christ's sacrifice and also lessons about the church or sacrifices required of God's people. For example, the burning of incense, which was done in the temple on a daily basis or the tabernacle before that, was a type of the prayers of the saints. We're told in Revelation 5 verse 6, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. This is a vision that John is seeing of God's throne. And this lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Then he came and took a scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is, this one who was the Lamb. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, 
which are the prayers of the saints. So the prayers of the saints are pictured by the incense that was offered in the temple of God under the Old Covenant. And sacrifices are not alien to the New Covenant. They're as much a part of the New Covenant as they were of the Old Covenant. But the form in which they are administered, or the, the manner in which they're administered, is not the same in many cases. We don't offer animal sacrifices under the New Covenant as a general rule. But those sacrifices, those various animal sacrifices and other aspects of the ceremonial law related to the Levitical priesthood were typified, or, or I should say the, the, the sacrifices of the New Covenant were typified by those under the Old Covenant. The New Covenant sacrifices are the reality which was intended to be pictured by those sacrifices under the Old Covenant. Notice, for example, in Romans 12, verse 1, Paul wrote, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not that you present a goat or an ox or a dove, but he said, I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Some of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were intended to picture one's absolute and total surrender to God. And that's what we are commanded to do under the new covenant. To be surrendered to God, to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. And that means that we must not conform ourselves to the world, but we must give up those things which are contrary to God's standards God's will for us that are in conflict with His holiness, we're to give up those things and we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may prove and, in other words, exercise our senses, behave in such a manner as to prove or to demonstrate what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's the purpose toward which those physical sacrifices aimed, one of the purposes. And by the way, that was demonstrated perfectly by Jesus Christ. Christ said to God that I came not to do my will, but your will. He totally surrendered himself to God's will, even to the point of death. That's what God wants us to do, both by living and, if necessary, by dying. What about the laws given under the Old Covenant? Now, some people have said the law, the commandments of God, were no part of the Old Covenant. That's a false teaching, and I've covered that before. 
demonstrated it. There are many scriptures which falsify that notion. But the Ten Commandments are at the core of the Old Covenant. The principle of loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, loving your neighbor, neighbor as yourself are at the very core of the Old Covenant. Those laws were, were essential to that covenant. Does that mean then because the covenant is done away or is no longer binding on us that the laws, those laws are done away? And you might ask, first of all, what do you mean law? What do you mean when you say the laws of the old covenant? The commandments and statutes given to Israel. Is that what you mean? If that's the answer, then those laws are even more binding today than they were under the Old Covenant, if anything. They're not only binding, they're even more binding in certain respects because we are held to a higher standard than the, the physical people of Israel as God's people having God's spirit. In some cases, the application, the application is different under the new covenant, but the laws given to Israel were based on spiritual principles. The commandments and statutes given to Israel were generally speaking limited physical applications of spiritual principles of God's law. And those spiritual laws were enforced long before God made the covenant with Israel. They did not come into existence at the time that God made that covenant. Now, they were revealed to Israel in a codified form at that time, but the laws themselves are eternal spiritual principles. And they existed long before the covenant that God made with Israel. We're told in 1 John 3 and verse 4 that sin is the transgression of God's law. John wrote in 1 John 3 and verse 4, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law. This is in the King James Version. For sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. When you sin, you're breaking the law. That's what sin is. Now we're told in Romans 5 verse 13 though that sin is not imputed where there is no law. If there's no law, there can't be any sin because sin is the breaking of the law. As Paul wrote in Romans 5 verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And yet we're told Adam sinned. In Romans 5 and verse 12, the verse just before verse 13 that we just read says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that, for that all have sinned. So we see that sin is imputed. It was imputed to Adam. It's been imputed to all men because of all of sin. And 
he was judged, Adam was judged because of his transgression. In Romans 5 verse 16, it says, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Notice it says the judgment which came through the one offense. He's talking about Adam's sin, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he had been told not to do. The judgment came from one offense, resulted in condemnation, but the free gift, he's talking about the gift of salvation, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. So, Adam was judged for his sin. And he was punished for it. He received the death penalty. Cain, after that, sinned by murdering his brother. And he was punished for it. The entire antediluvian world were judged by God and punished because of their sins. Now we're told that Noah preached righteousness to that world before it was destroyed. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, it says, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and this was, of course, a long time before the giving of the, the institution of the Old Covenant. But righteousness, what is righteousness? Righteousness and sin are defined by the law, by God's laws. In Psalm 119, verse 172, it says, All your commandments are righteousness. That's what defines righteousness, are the laws of God. And again, as we read in 1 John 3, and verse 4, sin is the transgression of the law. We read that even before the creation of mankind, in the Bible, that a group of angels sinned. For 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, and other scriptures make clear that the original sin occurred before the creation of mankind, if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And the hell in this case means simply a place of restraint, which was the earth. And it caused the earth to become dark and lifeless and sort of like a watery grave, which it was before the creation of Adam and Eve for a time. But the angels sinned. Satan sinned. And the angels who followed him sinned when they rebelled against God and threw aside his laws, his government. Abraham, who lived centuries before the covenant was established with Israel at Mount Sinai, was blessed in part because he kept God's commandments and statutes. We're told in Genesis 26 and verse 5, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Sodom and Gomorrah were punished for their unlawful deeds, as we read in 
2 Peter 2, beginning with verse 6, God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those to those who afterwards should live ungodly and de delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. They were destroyed because of their lawless deeds. They were breaking the law. God's law consists of those spiritual principles that produce peace, joy, happiness, and other blessings when obeyed. When disobeyed, the result is confusion, suffering, poverty, war, and other curses. We're told that Jesus Christ came to magnify the law. In other words, to make it applicable in the fullest, the broadest, and most meaningful way, and to make it honorable. In Isaiah 42 and verse 21, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. It says, The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness' sake. He, meaning the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will exalt the law and make it honorable. In Matthew 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So we see that Christ tells us that we must keep those laws. The very laws that were given to Israel, the laws that have always been in force and effect. The living spiritual principles given expression in the Ten Commandments and other laws that God gave to Israel. But many who claim to be Christ's ministers have degraded and belittled the commandments of God and made them seem contemptible in the eyes of the people. And this was prophesied to happen. In Malachi 1 and verse 7, the prophet says to the ministers, of that day, and this is a prophecy for our time as well, you say the table of the eternal is contemptible. The ministers say that. The table of the eternal is contemptible. And just as the priests or the ministers of Malachi's day were showing contempt for God's word, so do today's ministers, many of them. And in verse 11 of Malachi 1, it says, For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, says the Eternal of hosts. But you, speaking to the ministers, the, the, the priests, or today's ministers, whether they're called priests or called something else, 
you have profaned it in that you say the table of the eternal is polluted and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Now, the meat of God's table is his word, his law, as we read in Hebrews 5 verse 12. Paul was writing to the church and he said, when the time came that you ought to be teachers, you have need of one to teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, oracles, the, the word oracles is translated from a Greek word, which just means words. The words, the word of God are the oracles that he's talking about here. And he's saying to the Hebrew Christians that they had regressed spiritually to the point that they, they were almost becoming like people who were barely acquainted with God's word and had need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of, of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongs to them who are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So in this prophecy, the meat spoken of or the table, the food that is considered contemptible by the ministers is the Word of God. God's Word, including His laws. Malachi 2 and verse 7, Malachi wrote, The priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the eternal of hosts, but you have departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You've caused many to stumble at the law. And that's precisely what's happened today with the vast majority of ministers who claim to represent Christ. They've caused people to stumble at the law by teaching that the law is done away or teaching in various other ways that the law is not to be given the respect that God expects it to be given. Now notice God's judgment on such ministers in Malachi 2 and verse 9. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people according as you have not kept my ways but have lifted up the face against my law. And this latter phrase here, lifted up the face against my law is, is according to the margin in my Bible. Literally, it is accepted faces in the law, and it could include showing partiality, which is the way many translators translate it. But showing partiality itself is a showing disrespect toward God's law and is a violation of God's law. As James 2 and verse 8, or uh, excuse me, verse 9 says, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why is that? Why is it uh, sin to show partiality? Because when you show partiality, first of all, God 
commanded the people given judgment in Israel that they were not to show partiality in the law. But what you are doing when you're showing partiality is you're making excuses for transgressing the law. As it says in verse 10, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So not having committed one particular sin does not excuse you if you are committing other sins. And so we are to be honest with God's law and faithful to it. Jesus Christ did not diminish the laws of God. But as I stated earlier, he made them even more completely applicable and binding in the full spiritual sense. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. And so, Jesus came with the full spiritual reality of what the law of Moses only prefigured. And he went on to tell it, of the people whoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to teach them that it was wrong not just to murder, but even to hate another person. Matthew 5, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. So we see how the law here is magnified. It's magnified to show that the principle is a spiritual principle that has to do with your mind. Not just what you do, but how you think. He said that to even look at a woman lustfully was a breach of the seventh commandment. Matthew 5, verse 28, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's already violated that law by thinking about it, by entertaining the thought. Jesus said we're to become perfect even as the Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48, Therefore you shall be, or as it should be translated, become perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We need to be striving for perfection, striving to, to put away every evil thought and make all of our thoughts subject to God's perfect will and to strive to develop perfectly the mind of God. Now, that's a lifelong struggle, and we're probably never going to achieve that level of perfection in this lifetime, but we need to be striving for it. And if we are 
genuinely striving and making progress satisfactory to God, He will perfect us. He will see that we are perfected eventually, even if it's in the resurrection, but we need to still be growing toward, toward the end. Notice the what, what is, when, when you talk about the new covenant, what does that mean? What is the covenant? The new covenant. It says in Hebrews 10 verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them and their sins and their iniquities I will I remember no more. Notice that the laws of God are at the core of the new covenant just as they were at the core of the old covenant. The very same laws. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, don't worship idols or false gods, obey the Sabbath law and so forth. Every one of the laws given under the Old Covenant has a spiritual application under the New Covenant. Now, in many cases, the law is applied differently under the New Covenant. For example, the sacrificial laws apply under the New Covenant, but they apply differently. They don't apply in the exact same way. They apply differently, but they are nevertheless applicable. Circumcision applies under the New Covenant, but it is applied in a different manner. Under the Old Covenant, it was required literally and physically. The covenant itself was a literal and physical covenant. But God, through a series of miracles, finally showed the newly founded, spiritually begotten church that a literal physical application of the law of circumcision was not necessary under the new covenant. Though a far more meaningful and far-reaching spiritual application of the law of circumcision was necessary. As Paul wrote in Romans 2 and verse 28, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. So yes, circumcision is required under the new covenant, but not physical circumcision. Now, of course, many laws must continue to be applied physically as well as spiritually. Because although the Gentiles... Entering the church in the New Testament era learned that they were not required to be physically circumcised as a condition for entering into the church. They were required to, as we read in Acts 15 verse 20, they were required to abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. And of course, these were practices related to idolatrous customs 
common in Gentile nations. And the basis for their prohibition under the new covenant is to be found in the system of law codified in the Old Testament as part of the covenant given to Israel. And of course, all of these things are physical and outward indications of one's heart, one's readiness to apply the principles of God's law in your life to separate yourself from idolatry and from the world and its evil practices. So we need to understand that there are both physical and spiritual aspects to God's laws. And what one does affects his mind and his thinking. And the way one thinks affects his outward behavior, even as Jesus said. He said various things that are contrary to God's law, such as murder, evil thoughts, and so forth, come from within the heart. And so the things that, that are in your mind, in your heart, affect your outward behavior and vice versa. Under the Old Covenant, the emphasis was placed on deeds, on physical actions, on the outward man. Under the New Covenant, the emphasis is different. It is placed on the mind and the heart, the inner man. But inasmuch as the two are intimately related, neither is by any means ignored in either covenant. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. One could go on and on describing the spiritual realities prefigured in the Old Covenant, but enough, I believe, has been given that we should have the general idea. And there are some questions that are considered difficult regarding this point, but uh, we'll save that discussion for another time. In the next sermon in this series, we'll continue our discussion of some of the reasons for the giving of the Old Covenant and how it relates to the New Covenant.